Uh, in our time together this morning, I, I want to consider uh, the life of King Joash. Uh, Joash was a king who ruled the, the southern kingdom from 835 to 796 BC, uh, which is some 200 years before uh, exile into Babylon. Now, I want to consider his life as recorded by the scribe Ezra. Now, and hence, I would ask you to open your Bible to the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles and chapter 24. But before we begin this morning, uh, let's pray. The loving God and mighty Father, we do uh, thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that we can confidently stand on the Bible knowing that it is your word. Father, we know that the scriptures are powerful, they are relevant and they are sufficient. And Father, we seek your face this morning, desiring to hear from you, for we know that is our great need. Now, Father, we ask for eyes to see, for ears to hear. We ask for illuminated minds and soft hearts. Lord, we want your word to go deep within this morning. And we want it to change every aspect of our lives. Now, Father, through your spirit, please, please speak to us. Challenge and comfort us, encourage and exhort us, strengthen and stir us. Please do your sanctifying work within. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now what were you doing when you were seven years old? Can you remember back that far? You know, when I was seven, it was 1998, I was in year two and I was your typical boy. Loved my bike, loved sport, and loved being with my friends. Football, cricket, and soccer were all very high on my priority list. My team is the Brisbane Broncos, and they actually won the comp that year. I remember it. They smashed the Bulldogs. It was wonderful. You know, my, my, my soccer team was South Services Orange, and we had a pretty good year. I was good at soccer back then. I scored a few goals. You know, I I had a good collection of of Tazos and and Pokemon cards, and and I spent a lot of time riding my bike with my friends. You know, at the time, I I was in Sparky's, and I went to Sunday school where I had lots of fun. You know, life was quite good at seven. It was very carefree. And, And I'm sure your story is pretty similar. You know, the greatest burden at the age of seven is the dreaded homework and the occasional household chore. But life looked far different for Joash at this age. For verse 1 tells us that at the age of seven, he began to reign as king. In fact, he is the youngest king in the Bible. Now imagine a seven-year-old on the throne. Now is anyone here this morning seven? Can anyone put their hand up? Is there a seven-year-old? No, there's not. Cancel that. Well, let's imagine a seven-year-old on the throne. You know, I'm guessing that immigration, taxes and security would be the furthest thing from their mind. With the greater concern on implementing no more bedtimes, unlimited TV and lollies for all. You know, life at seven for Joash was certainly different to what it was for you and for me. But even making it to seven was a miracle for this boy king. For he had a deranged and disturbed grandma, a lady who was hungry for power. 
Her power was her drug. And she would do whatever it took in order to get that next power hit, even if it meant killing off her own grandchildren. You know, this lady is crazy. She's disturbed. Second Chronicles 22 verse 10 says, But when Athaliah, the mother of Azariah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal of the house of Judah. You know, what, what a delightful woman. You know, most grandmas, you picture this dear old lady who is sweet and kind, who is doting and delights in her family, but not this lady, Athaliah. She wants to kill them, not care for them, dispose of them, not delight in them. Now, she carried on the family tradition, for she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and just like her mother, she committed gross atrocities. Brutally slaying her own flesh and blood to satisfy her thirst for power. She has to go down as one of the most utterly perverted people in Scripture. But it is very important for you and I to see the big picture. This wicked woman is a tool in the hands of Satan. No one employed to destroy the messianic line. This is yet another attempt to terminate the line that Jesus must come through. If there was no seed, then Messiah could not come. And hence, this is what Satan is endeavouring to accomplish through this willing and wicked woman. And they come very close to accomplishing the mission. Very close. But God's plan could not be thwarted. And hence, providentially, God worked through the priest Jehoiada and his wife who hid a baby boy named Joash, snatching him from the jaws of death and hid him in the temple, preserving the messianic line. Jehoiada, the priest, he raised this boy Joash and he decided that the time was right for this boy to be crowned as king at the ripe old age of Seven, And what a tremendous shock this must have been for his charming grandmother who sat on the throne. She assumed that all of the threats had been eradicated, but now there was one who was the rightful heir to the throne. And this brought her wicked and damaging regime to a crashing halt. And Joash became the near-missing link in the chain of Davidic messianic succession. Satan again thought that he had dealt the crushing blow to God's plan, but but to no avail. For my friend, God's plans will always unfold as he is decreed. No one or nothing can thwart them. And that, beloved, is an incredibly comforting reality. God's plans and purposes in your life, God's plans and purposes in this world will come to pass. No one or nothing has the power to halt God's plans. Now there is what I think is a very obvious problem. A seven-year-old cannot be king without advisors. Joash was incapable of an intelligent and independent rule. And hence Jehoiada the priest would become his mentor and advisor. In fact, it's highly probable that Joash was simply a puppet in his early years, with Jehoiada calling the shots and setting the direction. 
So he shaped and molded this young king and the kingdom. And as I thought about this, I I wondered how this particular partnership would have played out. That it must have been particularly difficult for Jehoiada to determine when to loosen and lengthen the restraining cords. You know, it is this same battle that every parent wrestles with. You know, how much rope should I give? What should I allow? What, what is not permissible? You know, trying to determine what is best for the development of your child. And it is this battle, but on a far greater scale, that Jehoiada would have wrestled with. Because remember, it was Joash who was the king. It was this boy who possessed authority. And it must have been quite the challenging task to determine how to balance this delicate situation. Now, the text gives us no information as to how this relationship played out. Perhaps Joash was very frustrated with Jehoiada's control. You can picture the argument, particularly when Joash was a teenage boy. Hey, hey, I'm the king here. I I want to do it my way. Give me some slack. Whether it played out like this, we cannot be certain. But what we do know is that Jehoiada had a massive influence. Please notice in verse 2. You know, this, this gives you and I a sneak peek. It's like a movie trailer that reveals how the reign of this king would unfold. And it says, And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Now, whatever Jehoiada was present, Joash lived and reigned righteously. But when this influence was removed, it all went downhill. And this is how this chapter is broken up. That there is two stages or two scenes in the life of Joash. And these scenes are separated by the death of Jehoiada. And it is to these two scenes that we are going to consider together. And we will glean some important instructions for our own lives. So the first scene which I have entitled The Regulating Influence, is found in the first 14 verses. So let's pick up reading from verse 1. The Word of God says, Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Zibiah of Bathsheba. And Joash did that which was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took for him two wives, and he begat sons and daughters. And it came to pass after this, that Joash was minded to repair the house of the Lord. And he gathered together the priests and the Levites, and said to them, Go out unto the cities of Judah, and gather of all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that ye hasten the matter. Howbeit the Levites hastened it not." And the king called for Jehoiada the chief, and said unto him, Now why hast thou not required of the Levites to bring in out of Judah and out of Jerusalem the collection, according to the commandment of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the congregation of Israel for the tabernacle of the wilderness? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken up the house of God, and also all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord did they bestow upon Balaam. And at the king's commandment, they made a chest and set it without at the gate of the house of the Lord. 
And they made a proclamation through Judah and Jerusalem to bring into the Lord the collection that Moses, the servant of God, laid upon Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought in and cast into the chest until they had made an end. Now it came to pass that at what time the chest was brought unto the king's office by the hand of the Levites... And when they saw that there was much money, the king's scribe and the high priest's officer came and emptied the chest and took it and carried it to his place again. Thus they did day by day and gathered money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to such as did the work of the service of the house of the Lord and hired masons and carpenters to repair the house of the Lord and also such as wrought iron and brass to mend the house of the Lord. So the workmen wrought, and the work was perfected by them, and they set the house of God in his state and strengthened it. And when they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, whereof were made vessels for the house of the Lord, even vessels to minister and to offer with all, and spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. No things started out quite well for Joash. He was determined to repair the temple. The temple had fallen into a state of disrepair during the wicked reign of his grandmother. Verse 7 tells us that the temple had been broken up. So so this is not just your your general wear and tear. It needed a lot more than, than a coat of paint to put it in modern terms. For the temple had been ransacked. And the valuables had been offered in pagan worship. The damage was extensive. The extent of repair work is seen in the fact that skilled workers were hired. We read of masons and carpenters. Now we need to understand that there was a maintenance crew employed in the temple. It was their job to maintain things. But such was the scope of the work that tradesmen needed to be Employed, You know, the temple needed a complete renovation. And this young king determines that the temple needed to be repaired. He desired for it to be operational. This was something that he identified to be of utmost importance. The condition of the temple was a valid measurement of the heart and passion of the people of God for the things of God. Of course, the temple was not God. God is not a building. But neglect of the temple reflected neglect of God. And hence the king's attitude towards the temple is really a thermometer of their care and commitment towards God. So this desire to repair the temple, this is a good and a right desire. What his motives were, we cannot be sure. You know, a lot of writers suggest that perhaps this was an attempt to impress Jehoiada, like a son striving to win the approval of his father. And perhaps that is true, but but we cannot make too much of the motive, for we are not given that information. But, But what we do see from the text is that others did not buy into this plan like we may have expected. This plan for the priests and the Levites to gather money from the people throughout the kingdom, and this would be used to repair 
the temple. And Joash found precedence for this method in the tax that Moses had commissioned for the care of the tabernacle. But verse 5 tells us that the Levites hastened it not. That they would not follow the instructions. And this is bizarre, isn't it? You would assume that the Levites would want a functioning temple. You would think that they would be the leading advocates, but apparently not. Some scholars have speculated that they acted in this way because they despised the youth of this young ruler. He was wrestling with what Timothy would later deal with in the church at Ephesus when Paul wrote to him, let no man despise thy youth. And yet others have thought that, that the people were so used to Jehoiada calling the shots that they refused to hearken to the instructions unless it came from his mouth. Or it could have simply been they did not have the time to undertake this collection. Or perhaps they thought that they would miss out if the people were giving to this cause. Whatever the reasoning may be, the king wasn't thrilled at this obvious negulence. And hence he decides to employ another method after scolding Jehoiada. And for whatever reason, this second attempt had dramatic success. So it was determined instead of having an offering, a massive box would be built and would be placed at the temple. And then the people could freely leave that offering and this would be used to fund the repairs for the temple. It's particularly interesting that the people really got behind this second attempt. They were not forced, they were not coaxed. To give, and the people give generously. The offering bags were overflowing, and this enabled the employment of tradesmen to repair the temple. And notice within the text that so much was given that they could also remake the temple vessels. The vessels that had been taken during the, the, the wicked reign of Joash's grandmother. And this restoring enabled sacrifices to be offered again. That the temple could function as God intended. So this is the first part of the reign of Joash. And this is a very impressive beginning. That there seems to be some sort of spiritual conviction. Some sort of commitment to God. Jehoiada had molded and formed what appeared to be a godly king. But then a critical event occurs, and it changes the direction of the life and reign of Joash, and that is the death of Jehoiada. Please read verses 15 and 16 with me. It says, But Jehoiada waxed old, and was full of days when he died. A hundred and thirty years old was he when he died. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings, because he had done good in Israel both toward God and toward his house. The character and and the quality of the man Jehoiada is revealed in the burial that he is given. But, But before we get to that, notice the length of his life firstly. So he lived 130 years, and that's very old for this time in history. And surely this is God's mercy both to Judah and to Joash. Notice the phraseology employed in verse 15. It says, and was full of days. This phrase implies great honor. 
And the same phraseology is used to describe the death of Abraham in Genesis 25 verse 8. So this reveals the quality of the man Jehoiada. Now, he, he was influential. He had done much good, but both for the country and, and the text also says within his own home. And surely this includes the influence and the effect that he had on Joash. Now, throughout the book of Chronicles, if you were to do a study, the burial that one receives reveals the type of person that they were. It reveals whether they were godly or not. And we see that Jehoiada, he's given the best possible burial. For he was buried in the city of David with the kings, even though he was not a king. So this speaks volumes about his character and his influence. He received what was equivalent to a modern day state funeral. He was honored as a significant and godly figure. But unfortunately, his death meant that his influence and his control on the life of Joash was now removed. And this led to disaster. It was like the flood walls that had been holding back the water had been removed. The wild dog is let off the chain. The cage restraining the lion had been removed. And the life of Joash spiraled out of control. He changed dramatically with the removal of Jehoiada. And this leads to the second scene of the life of this king, which I have entitled the removal of influence. Please read with me from verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada came the princes of Judah and made obeisance to the king. Then the king hearkened unto them, and they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served groves and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not give ear. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord that ye cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. And they conspired against him. And stoned him with the stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Now thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and require it. And it came to pass at the end of the year that the host of Syria came up against him. And they came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all the spoil of them unto the king of Damascus. For the army of the Syrians came with a small company of men and the Lord delivered a very great host into their hand because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. So they executed judgment against Joash. And when they were departed from him, For they left him in great diseases. His own servants conspired against him for the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and slew him on his bed and he died. And they buried him in the city of David, but they buried him not in the sepulchres of the kings. 
things changed very quickly when the godly influence was removed. The true colours of Joash were revealed. The lack of depth of faith was made obvious. His inner weakness was unveiled, for as soon as Jehoiada was off the scene, things went downhill very quickly. In verses 17 and 18, a group of fraudulent flatterers approached the king, and they woo him with the sweet honey of flattery. They bow down, they appeal to his ego, and they say whatever was necessary to get what they wanted. And immediately the weak nature of the king's constitution is revealed, for he is immediately ensnared in their web. You know, this group of men who who most writers think were former supporters of Athaliah, they come to this king and they implore him to relax the religious standards. Joash, don't be so strict and regimented. Joash, don't be so exclusive in your religion. But hey, let's reintroduce the, the, the plethora of religious options that we once had. And it seems immediately that this king jumps back into the deep, dark and dangerous waters of idolatry. Under his leadership, the temple is again abandoned. Idolatry is again embraced. It seems as though the tomb of Jehoiada is only just sealed and this king leads the people back into the oppression of idolatry. He was so easily manipulated by this group of men who were pushing their own agenda. And this foolish king reverts to prior paganism. And as is always the case, once one is on the slippery slide of sin, it only gains momentum. Things only get worse. The waters get deeper. A sin stranglehold gets tighter like the snake on its prey. Sin sets its hook deeper. Sin takes you further than you wanted to go. And what before looked unimaginable becomes not only a possibility but a reality. And this sin pattern is followed in the life of Joash. The Lord was merciful and he sent prophets to warn the king. To to warn them about their idolatry, that they had a chance to repent, to turn back to the Lord. And and what amazing mercy that God would even give a warning. But but the prophet's message was rejected. And we're told of a particular prophet in verse 21. You know, the Lord raised up a man named Zechariah. This Zechariah is not the writer of the book that bears his name. But rather, he is the son of Jehoiada. So Joash would have been familiar with this man. They would have spent time together, but perhaps they lived together. In a lot of ways, they would have been like stepbrothers. So surely, if Joash would listen to anybody, it would be Zechariah. The prophet issues a very pointed and very clear Message, but it is rejected, that there is no repentance. But not only did Joash refuse to hearken, but he commanded his life to be taken. What a great tragedy. What a wretched and disgraceful man this king had become, that he would stain his hands with the blood of the prophet of God. 
that he would stain his hands with the blood of the son of the man who had saved him from being murdered. What a truly devastating change that had unfolded in the life of this man that he was now complicit in such horrendous crimes. The judgment of God was unleashed upon Joash. We're told that a much smaller Syrian army was God's choice of weapon to execute judgment. You know, and they overcome a far greater army. You know, the tables have been turned. How often we read in the Old Testament, Israel has such a small army and they overcome a large force. But, but now it's the other way around. For, for God is judging his people for forsaking him. You know, and the life of Joash is ultimately taken by his servants. You know, how ironic that Joash the betrayer was betrayed. And we see from his burial that he was not buried with the kings. And this reveals how his life was ultimately regarded. He started well, but he finished so poorly. And it is his finish that he is remembered for. What a striking fall. The influence is removed and what was really inside was exposed. Now, this is the sad tale of Joash. But what can we learn from this sad state of affairs? So I want to leave you with three thoughts. Number one, don't underestimate your influence. Now, within the text, one man had such an instrumental influence on the life of another. So Jehoiada was, sorry, Jehoiada shaped and molded Joash. But wherever he was present, he had a positive effect. Now, he played a crucial role in preserving righteousness. His influence ensured that God's work was done. He helped to restrain evil. And the huge influence that he possessed is made crystal clear in how everything unravels when he passes. Oh, this man used his influence for good. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this text, said, See the influence of one man. One man can sway a state. One man can check sin. One man can be the head of a host who shall serve God and honour his name. You know, my friend, do not underestimate the influence that one individual can have. Don't undervalue the influence that you can have. Now you can make a difference. You can have an effect for God's glory. You know, how often we think we are so small and insignificant and hence can accomplish nothing in God's kingdom. But, but we must understand that we do have influence. And we mustn't underestimate the effect that we can have. Now we all have influence within our own families. We all have a great effect on how our children turn out. We impact our spouses. We must not underestimate the power of our influence within our own homes. Our attitudes and our actions have a huge shaping effect on those that we live with. As parents, we have a very special privilege to shape and mould our children like nobody else. And we mustn't underestimate the impact of our influence. 
But the Christian's influence is not restricted to the home, for it also has a great effect within the local body. Every part of this body has some impact. Those children that you minister to in Sunday school or blast, you are having an impact on their life. Those prayers that you pray for the church leaders, for your brothers and sisters, they have a huge effect. Those encouraging comments, those helpful remarks make a tremendous difference. Your example of faithful service in setting up and packing up, in providing morning tea, in delivering the music, in providing meals, in visiting and encouraging or whatever else it may be, this all has a huge influence and effect within this local body. You know, I know that this church has had a big influence on me personally. Those words of encouragement, the prayers, people serving me, this has had an effect in my life. Beloved, may you be encouraged this morning, just like Jehoiada, you have an effect right here. And we can also have an effect in the world around us. In our workplace, in our neighbourhood, in our sport club, in our community, just like Jehoiada, we can have an impact. We can preserve righteousness and prevent evil. We can shine the gospel light into the great darkness that plagues our community. Remember that Jesus tells us to be salt, and one of salt's purposes is to preserve. And we as Christians have that effect. Don't underestimate the preserving and restraining influence that one man or woman can have. Don't undervalue the effect of sharing the gospel. Don't don't underrate the power of a Christ-like testimony. You you can have a a great effect in our town. Uh, This is what our community so desperately needs. Christians who are being salt and light. We all have influence, whether positive or negative. And may we not underestimate the effect that we have. Number two, I'd like to point out the danger of shallow faith and outward conformity. Now, what is very evident in the life of Joash is the fact that his faith was very shallow. He's a very fitting illustration of the shallow soil in Jesus' parable. On the surface, at the beginning, he appeared to be a follower of God, but, but this was all external conformity. And the problem with this man was the fact that he was more concerned about pleasing Jehoiada than he was God. And this is a very common problem within Christianity. You know, the the supposed faith that one possesses is just a veneer. It's a facade simply to endeavour to please. Now, I do wonder how many young people have been raised in the church and have ended up drifting away for this very reason. Their faith was just a show for their parents. They wanted to please mum and dad rather than God. Their hearts were given to their parents rather than the Lord, and this led to disaster. As one writer said, all that Joash had done was to give his heart to Jehoiada, not to Jehovah. 
It's very easy to be outwardly religious by giving your heart to your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle or some good person who helps you to do what is right. You you were doing all this out of love for them, which is at best but a very secondary motive. For God says, my son, give me thine heart. And you know, we must be careful and alert to avoid this trap. No, for our faith, for our Christian life to be motivated by simply pleasing our family, our friends or our pastor. Because what happens when this influence is removed? You know, would you continue to live for the Lord if the influences on your life were removed? Or do you possess a very shallow faith? The one that fluctuates and deviates depending on who you're around. Is your Christianity just a facade to please another? Your spouse, your parents, your friends. Do not deceive yourself, my friend, into thinking that you have a real faith if you do not. For self-deception is such a terrible thing. And this is something that we as parents need to be so diligent with. That our children don't possess outward conformity simply to please us. To just possess this Christian veneer. For them to do this or do that simply because this is what mum and dad says and expects. Because as they grow up, that will not cut it. Our children need to give their hearts to God, not to their parents. That they need to fear God, for that is the greatest motivator. They need personal appropriation of the scriptures by the Holy Spirit for mere knowledge is pointless. May we teach our children the gospel. Teach them that it is God that they should love above all else. Fear and obey Him. For that is the remedy to ensure they don't become like Joash. And thirdly, and probably the most obvious point, you know, we need to finish well. You know, Joash seemed to start so well, but it ended so badly. And it's so unfortunate that throughout history, many have not finished the Christian life well. Now, how many have been you know, on fire for Christ at one time, but now that fire is a mere flicker? How, how many Christians grow, grow lukewarm? Tolerate worldliness and wickedness. That evangelistic zeal is no longer present. The desire to serve is no longer as strong. The walk with Christ is not as close. You know, it's unfortunately far too common to see Christians who start well but finish poorly. And that's the warning for us this morning. You know, may, may we continue on. You know, may we, by God's grace, press on towards the finish line, continuing to run the race, looking to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. May we not stop running. May we not give up in despondency. May we not allow sin to weigh us down and stop us from running, but may we persevere to the end. Aspiring in God's strength to remain faithful and loyal. You know, may we not be added to the dreaded list of those that started so well but fell away so dreadfully. You know, beloved, let's continue to push on towards the finish line. May we help and encourage each other with this. 
No, that line may be quite close for some of us. No, let's keep running for Christ. You know, giving our all to Him who has given His all for us. Doing our best for Jesus since He has done so much for us. And may we, with the Apostle Paul, be able to say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. You no know, Christian, keep running and finish the race well. Amen.